Good morning. Lovely to <coughs> see you. Fantastic. Have I got this thing on? Probably working great. Thanks. Paul's nodding, which is good. Well, just before I get into my talk, I uh, feel I uh, will tell you a couple of little stories about myself, just because I'm, I know I'm the uh, first one to take the mickey out of somebody else, and uh, it's always good when others can take the mickey out of me. Uh, just want to say that uh, since having the dog, I've now fallen over four times. Uh, two before uh, the summer, which you've probably heard about. Uh, two more over the summer, I thought I'd let you know about. First one was on holiday, trying to get out the dog one, uh, the, the door one night to, to let the dog go for a wee. I had dog, I had lead, I had door. Uh, I suddenly, for some reason, the dog went to go out before me, and I remembered in my training, mustn't do that, must go out before the dog. I then decided that I would step out before the dog. It's dark, it's a different step. I stepped through the uh, lead, straight over it, down the step, and straight over. Do like a, like a forward roll out of the door. End up laying there with the dog looking at me, wagging its tail. What an idiot. And then yesterday, out walking uh, around the fields behind her screen, met a guy, had a chat, two dogs kind of saying hello to each other. Uh, he had a little um, border terrier, I think. The dog's kind of doing a bit of that circle thing, and I decide, right, time to walk on now. Nice to meet you. Thanks very much. Come on, Asher. Off we go. You know, off I go like this. I look around, you know, wonder whether she's going to follow me kind of thing. Look around. Asher comes, does a massive circle and sweeps and goes right under my leg. Border Terrier comes and stops right in front of me. But I'm in mid-walk. I'm in mid like this. So I end up like this, leg in the air, dog behind me, dog in front of me, can't put my leg down. Yum, over I go, do the roll, jump up, you know, folks looking, nah. you're right, yeah, fine, mate, yeah, you know, no problem, just fell over two dogs. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with anything, but uh, I know you'd laugh uh, if you saw it, and I would laugh at you if you did it, so, you know, uh, I've seen it there. I want you to think for a moment, um, if you can, uh, about people who you know who are not Christians or that you don't believe are Christians right now. Might be a uh, family member, might be a friend, might be a colleague or a neighbor. Just have a few of them in your mind's eye. And maybe I want you to select the one who you think is the least likely to become a Christian. All right, the least likely. Take a snapshot of them. They represent the rest of the group, but... But just think of them for the moment. Has everybody got someone? Just stick your hand up if you've got some. Yeah, okay, we've all got some. Maybe it is that they're just, they've, they've said outright, they just don't believe in God. They just think faith is a complete load of rubbish. It may be that they've never shown any interest in anything to do with Christianity. Whatever it is, just fix that person in your mind. Now, during this preaching series that we are looking at, we're looking at different encounters that people had with Jesus. And the strap line is old stories, new stories. Because we want to be stirred that actually these old encounters and old stories, these things that happened, would stir us and we would begin to have encounters like that in our day, in our lives. Quincy has got a fantastic testimony of someone being saved here in this school this week that he shared at the prayer meeting on Thursday. I'm not going to share it with you. He was going to share it if he was here, but baby Quincy came along and that plan was, well, an amazing story of salvation. 
and really a great example of what we're talking about here. We want these, these encounters that we read about to stir us in prayer and action, believing that God, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, still wants to do everything today, now, in the here and now, that he did back then and there. Are you with me? Okay, that's the idea, in a sense, of this story. And many of the encounters that we are going to look at during this series, the people seem to be already somehow interested in Jesus. Or that's where we come into the encounter on. So even over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've done two of these. You can hear the podcast if you miss them. One guy climbs up the tree to get a better look at Jesus. And the other guy is there on the road shouting out to Jesus twice. And so if you like... Uh, there is some interest. When we come into the encounter, when we read about the story, there is already an interest in Jesus. But I want to ask, what about those who appear to have no interest in Jesus? What about that person that you got in your mind's eye when I asked you earlier? What about them? Is there anything in this encounter that can help us read those people? So I'm going to We're going to look at John 9, quite a long uh, chapter, longer than I perhaps normally read out. But we have to read the whole of the encounter, I think, to get out what it is that God wants to say to us this morning. It will come up behind me, but I'll read John 9 for you. Talking about Jesus. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit, or in my English, he spat, on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it in the man's eyes. That's a healing technique, isn't it, eh? Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, "Uh, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders of the day, the man who had been blind. Now on the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? 
how is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parent psalm says, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to godly persons who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your word and we pray that you would speak to each one of us. You would open up our ears, you would open up our eyes, you would teach us the things that you want us to learn this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's a great story, isn't it? I mean, it's a funny, it's a funny story. Uh, the sketch writers could make hay with this. And when I read this uh, account, really there were a number of things I could have focused on. For example, the disciples and their question. Because this encounter actually starts with the disciples asking Jesus a question about the blind man. He isn't actually involved except that he's the focus of a question. Who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? And the reason why they asked that was because the Pharisees, who later on get really upset, they had been teaching the people that sickness like this was as a result of either the individual's sin or their parents' sin. So that's why the disciples asked this question. But Jesus says, neither. Because Jesus knows that sickness came into the world when sin came into the world, when Adam sinned. So Jesus knows that it's not the result of this man's sin or his parents' sin. But Jesus says, but you know what? Something is now going to happen. This is now going to happen, which is actually going to display and bring God glory. Because Jesus knows that this man is going to get miraculously healed. 
Now, there is a lot of sickness about in general, and there's a lot of Christian ink spilt on sickness and why, etc., etc. And I could have focused on, on that. The second thing I think I could have focused on are the Pharisees and their insecurities. You see, they are so afraid of Jesus. They are so afraid of their position and status that he threatens. The Bible says they've already made up their mind that anyone who says that Jesus is the Messiah is going to be kicked out. They are so insecure. And so it's like they completely ignore the fact that he's performed this amazing miracle. They try and discredit him. They try and claim that he's worked on the Sabbath and he's broken one of God's laws, which actually Jesus hadn't. God had given his laws and then the religious leaders had decided what that meant. What did working on the Sabbath mean? What did it entail? They kind of added on all these sub-laws and really it was one of those that they were saying Jesus has broken. But you know what? Jesus doesn't care two hoots about some man-made religious kind of laws. Him and God are fine with doing good and doing a blessing and healing a blind man any day of the week. So what really their reaction shows, these Pharisees, is that they love religion. They love man-made rules. They love being in charge of the man-made rules and policing them. They love them more than they love God or they love their fellow man or they have compassion for others. And then we kind of get this absolute farce where they kind of question, is is this the man? Was he really blind? Uh, They question the parents. Let's get the parents in. Is this your son? Mm, mm. Was he really born blind? Mm, Was he really? Are you? And then and they call him, and then they call the man in. Mm, Were you really? Mm, How did he do it? I mean, this is this is what they're doing. They question the man. They question his parents. They actually, these are supposed to be the religious leaders who who know and speak on behalf of God. And they're asking the man, how did God do it if God did it at all and he didn't really, did he? I mean, it's just a farcical thing. But I suppose it goes to show the lengths that people will go to if they really don't want to believe something. Or rather, see, most of the Pharisees started from the place that they were not going to believe no matter what. They were not going to acknowledge that Jesus did this as a miracle because then they would have to acknowledge that Jesus was from God. Then they would have to acknowledge that he was the Messiah. And if he was the Messiah, then the people, including them, would have to start following Jesus. And they enjoyed the position, the status of having the people follow them. And so no matter what, they were not going to acknowledge that Jesus did this miracle. Some did, most didn't. It's amazing to see how entrenched when people come to a point of view that they say, this is my point of view and I'm not going to change from it, then how they are able and willing to manipulate facts, ignore things that don't fit in with what they believe. And really that's an example of what we are seeing here. And in the end, the Pharisees, when the man has a brilliant, brilliantly simple, logical, uh, man can't do this, only God can, God only works through good men, Jesus did this amazing thing, God must have worked through him, therefore, this man is from God. I mean, that's the simple way he works. The Pharisees abandon all logic, tell him he's a sinner and kick him out. That's it. Don't tell us, don't talk to us anymore. 
Actually, the problem is they can't answer the man's logic. Could have focused on that, decided not to. I thought I might have looked at the parents because what we see from here is their fear. We sang about fear this morning. What, what we see in the parents is fear. We could have got some, par- some points for the parenting course, but maybe not of things that we should do because they're so afraid. Imagine this. You've got a son and he's been blind since birth and then God heals him. God heals him. And yet, The parents are so afraid of being excommunicated, kicked out, put out of fellowship by the Pharisees, that when they're questioned about it, they literally kind of put their son back on the spot. They they, they should have been rejoicing, celebrating, saying, yeah, it's wonderful. Look, can't you see how wonderful it is that he's been, he can see, isn't it amazing, isn't it wonderful? But there's none of that coming from them. Actually, what happens is, that the pressure and the heat and the questioning comes on them and they are so fearful that actually they kind of duck away, shy away. They kind of say, well, we're getting off this spotlight. And they kind of put their son back in the center, back kind of under the interrogation. Now, look, as parents, anybody here who is a parent, we do things that don't cover ourselves in glory. We know that. I'm not really having a go at the parents. I think what it shows for me is the power of fear. That fear of what other people think or may do can even rob a parent of joy when their son gets miraculously healed. It's quite something, I think, that. The, The power of fear. What others think. On the freedom in Christ, we look at fear just to say, and we basically look at this. We say, we can choose to either fear God Or if we don't fear God, then we're open to fear everything else. Other people, expectations, opinions, what we think of ourselves, the devil, etc., etc. We kind of have a choice. We either fear God or we we open ourselves to fear everything else. And we kind of see it here with these parents. You know, as I looked at this passage, what I felt God kept drawing me back to was the actual encounter between Jesus and the blind man. Because much of this passage is the consequence of that encounter. It's how others dealt with it. It's what they made of it, like the Pharisees and the parents. But I felt like God kept pulling me back. Look at the actual encounter between Jesus and the blind man. This is what I felt God wants to specifically teach us about this morning. In our worship, we sang quite a few songs about, and I think Megan did a refrain, you know, I am because of who he is, didn't we? I I am because he is. I can because he can. And actually, it's a little bit of a flavor of what I want to talk about now. Because in the next chapter of John, chapter 10, Jesus teaches his disciples that he is the gate and he is the good shepherd. Right? There are seven descriptions of the I am where Jesus says, I am the light. I am the resurrection and the life. Seven statements where he's describing what he is like, and two of them are in the very next chapter. It's what he says after this encounter. And he describes himself as the gate and the good shepherd. Now, he's the gate because everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God has to come through him. So he says in John 10, 7 and 9, therefore Jesus says, 
Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And then in his next line, he says that he's the good shepherd because he goes out and finds the sheep. And when he finds them, he, he brings them into his flock and he lays down his life for them. So John 10, verse 11 and 16, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So in this chapter, in this encounter with the blind man, what we are seeing is Jesus demonstrating both. Right? He seeks the blind man as his good shepherd, and then he leads him to the gate, which is Jesus himself, so that the man can enter the kingdom of God. Right? We mustn't miss in the action of everything else, and this rather comical scene of the Pharisees getting the parents, that actually Jesus is demonstrating two of the great I am statements that he says he is. I am the gate, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is basically doing that with this blind man. And I just want to give you three points to help us grasp hold of this. Firstly, to say, this blind man to me isn't looking for Jesus. He, he, he's there to get money. He's there to beg. There is no welfare state in those days. He probably wouldn't have had much of an education. Most jobs wouldn't have been open to him. So many people in a similar physical illness to him, blindness or couldn't walk, they would have to beg to survive, to get money. He isn't deliberately at this location because Jesus was passing through like we read in some of the other encounters. He's there presumably because he's worked out it's a good place to beg. And you know, not only is this blind man not looking for Jesus, there's no reason given for Jesus to look to him rather than any of the other beggars that might have been there or anybody else who happened to be on the road that day. The Bible doesn't state or even hint that he was a good man, you know, the kind of beggar that shared with other beggars who hadn't done so well that day. No hint of that at all. No one from his town or his parents in questioning say, well, I'm sure that God healed him because this he's a good man, he's a good bloke, he's a good example of, you know, uh, keeping faith under difficult circumstances and a disability. There's none of that. He just seems to be a blind man who needs to beg for money to live. He's not looking to God. He's not looking to Jesus. There seems to be no obvious reason why Jesus should do anything for him or even acknowledge him. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus does. Jesus sees him. He speaks to him. He heals him. And then later on, he finds him, speaks to him again, and leads him to salvation. Just think about that person that you thought about earlier. Just think about them. I suspect you and I would think that they aren't looking for Jesus right now. And maybe you think, well, actually, there's not any reason why Jesus should look for them because they're clearly not looking for him. But that's the same as this blind man. In fact, it's the same of you and me here this morning if you're a Christian. Do you know, we weren't born interested in Jesus. 
We weren't born with some kind of interest in him. And then somehow, luckily, through consequence and chance, we managed to find him. Well done us. Hallelujah. In Ephesians, it says quite clearly that we were dead in our sins. We are born spiritually dead. And you know, dead people don't have any, any interest in Jesus whatsoever until Jesus comes and wakes them up and gives them even an ability to have an interest in him. So the truth is that I know lots of people who aren't looking for Jesus. But this story gives me hope that Jesus looks for people who aren't looking for him. Do you understand? I actually draw hope from this. I'm desperate to see a spark of interest in people that I love with Jesus. Some of them I've been waiting 25 years for a spark. But you know, this story just says to me, do you know what? No, no, actually, all right, I'd love to see a spark. But actually, Jesus still looks for people who have no spark of interest. I think I had a spark of interest because I got saved so long ago, I can't remember. But it's not true. See, blindness wasn't this man's biggest problem. Sin was. This man's biggest problem wasn't the one that everyone could see. It was the unseen one of sin that Jesus could see. See, when I read about this story, what catches my attention is that he's physically blind. The heading of the encounter, man born blind. Oh, he's blind, is he? That's what catches my attention. I'm sure when the people and the Pharisees saw him, they focused on his blindness. Oh, there's a blind man there. If people said, who's that man? They were, there's a blind man there. And actually, because of that, he's begging. And because of that, actually, he's low down the social order. Most people probably wouldn't befriend him. They wouldn't want to take counsel from him. They wouldn't want to have him as their friend. In fact, most religious types would have said, oh, either he's sin or his parents are sin. We better stay away from him. Actually, I'll spare him a couple of coppers because that will make me feel good. God, did you see that? That's how they probably would have treated him. That's how they would have viewed him. Maybe that's how he viewed himself because of how everybody else views him. Even the disciples ask about sin, but only in relation to his blindness. They're not asking about his spiritual state. They actually want to know the question, that blindness, was it caused by his sin or someone else's sin? That's their interest. And that's because what everybody saw was a blind man. And his disability, his blindness, defined him in their eyes. But what Jesus saw was a sinful man who happened to be blind. Everybody else saw a blind man and didn't really go much further. What Jesus saw was a sinful man who happened to be blind. A man who had a problem way bigger than not being able to see. He had the problem that he was separated from God, that his sin was counting against him, that it hadn't been dealt with, that here is a man who isn't saved. To those with good physical sight, the man's blindness appeared his biggest problem. But to Jesus, with excellent spiritual sight, it was the problem of sin that was the man's problem. And we know this because see what Jesus does. After he's healed him, he goes and finds him after the Pharisees have thrown him out because Jesus wants to address this problem of sin. If Jesus just came to do good things and to heal the man, now we can see, go and have a lovely life. God bless you. There's no reason for Jesus to go back and find the man and have this conversation with him. But 
Jesus understands that a miracle is just a means to an end. And the end is that the man's sin might be dealt with because it's that sin which is separating him from having a relationship with God. See, personally, I don't know about you, but I, I find this difficult. I get my head around it theologically, but I do find it harder to live with a sense of this in my day-to-day life with people that I know. It's like it's easy and natural for me to evaluate how they're doing by things that I see. Their job, uh, how they're doing in terms of you know their health, wealth, happiness, uh, how they seem to be doing. With, which, with whichever grid I get to try and work out how someone's doing, what I tend to look at is what I can see with my physical eyes. Are you with me? That's, that's, that's how I kind of go... what I really should be doing is trying to see through my spiritual eyes. God, how are they really doing? God, where is their standing before you? How can I do something about that? Which surely is more important than whether they seem to be doing well or not well, more money, less money, getting that promotion, not getting that promotion. All that is secondary to actually, God, where are they before you? Has their sin been dealt with? Are are they separated from you? That's where I should be going first. I think, again, though, this incident gives me hope because Jesus said that everything he did, he did empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that, with the Holy Spirit now living inside of me and you if you're a Christian, everything the Holy Spirit showed and empowered Jesus to do, he is able to show and empower me and you to do. So there is hope there. It's just a question of can I learn to close my physical eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to open my spiritual eyes when I look at people, and actually be able to see what the bigger problem is. I think that's what Jesus did. He let the Pharisees and the parents and the man have their little farcical court case that I find so fascinating when I read it. He lets it all go on, but he goes back to the man because he's got to deal with the sin. See, that's what we see. Jesus addressed the problem of the blind man's sin. It's very easy when you read through this encounter to forget this second bit. You think Jesus has gone back and said, well done. (laughs) He doesn't. He leads him to salvation. This is the most important part of the whole thing. It's Jesus, note, who goes and finds the man again. It's not the man who comes to find Jesus. Jesus, the good shepherd, once again goes and finds the man. And what he does is lead him to salvation. He literally opens the door, which is himself, the gate to salvation and say, come on, walk right through. This is a real-life demonstration of him being the good shepherd and being the gate. And notice Jesus focuses on two things in opening and leading this man to salvation. Firstly, does he know who Jesus is? Does this man know who Jesus is? Through all this encounter and conversation and the Holy Spirit working and the miracle, has the man changed his opinion of who Jesus is? Now, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favorite names for himself? The man says, who is this Son of Man? Jesus says, it's me. 
I'm standing right before you, right? Do you believe that I am who I say I am? And that is the first part of salvation. The man doesn't probably know how Jesus is going to save him, probably doesn't know much about the cross or atonement. But at this stage, all he needs to know is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's a man, but he's more than a man. If you look at the man's description of Jesus throughout this chapter, you'll notice that it changes. He starts off by saying, the man they call Jesus. And the, the man they call Jesus, verse 11. And then in verse 17, he says he's a prophet. He's a man from God speaking on behalf of God. And then down in verse 27, he's saying to the uh, Pharisees, do you want to become his disciple? He's a prophet who's kind of worth following. And then in verse 33, he describes Jesus as coming from God. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And finally, verse 38, he calls him Lord, Messiah, God. Through this encounter, the man's own understanding of who Jesus is has gone from that man, he's just a man, that man, all the way through to he's God, he's Lord. We don't see it explained, but we pick it up in the terms that he uses. And then secondly, Jesus invites him to believe in him, to literally, to put his trust in him. Not some academic knowledge, you know, that there was once a man called Jesus. Like if someone said to me, uh, do you believe in Winston Churchill or Maggie Thatcher? I could say, well, I believe there was a man called Winston Churchill and a lady called Maggie Thatcher because I've read about them, I've seen them on the newspapers, TV. No, no, this is, will you put your trust in him? Will you believe him? Will you trust him as your saviour and as your king, as the Lord, as the Messiah? And we see this man gets it from his response because he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. His response shows that this man has surrendered to Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. And you know, today nothing's changed. We might just be able to explain how Jesus is going to pay the bill. We can explain how he's going to do that by the cross. But in terms of being saved, nothing has changed. People need to understand that Jesus is the Son of God and they need to be challenged to put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Do you remember that thing that I said was the man's biggest problem? Not his blindness, sin. That's what gets dealt with here in this moment. The moment the man acknowledges Jesus and puts his faith in him, sin, right? Sin, the things that he says and does, which God wouldn't have him do or say, is completely dealt with, done, washed away, removed. There is now no separation between the man and God. It's dealt with. We get to see it right here. This, this is the moment when heaven screams. I wonder whether if we were there, we'd scream at the man being able to see. I'm sure heaven did scream, but I think it screamed louder at this moment. Are you with me? When Jesus opens up the gate and says, come into the kingdom of heaven, this is the moment the blind man gets his sin sorted out. It's a much bigger deal than having his blindness done. The blindness led him on the path, but this is the moment of salvation. That actually now it's not going to be his own cleverness, goodness, morality, but it's Jesus' sacrifice. He is the saviour. 
And now the man is no longer living for his own desires, his own decisions, his own distraction. No, no, I'm following Jesus. He is my king. I think it's easy to read this encounter and miss the punchline. We mustn't miss the punchline. People's greatest need is not physical healing or, or, or material things, even though it is good to be able to meet those. And God wants to meet those. We must never forget that it is sin that separates people. When they stand before him, it won't be those other things that will define where they go. If heaven is left and hell is right, it won't be those other things that define which way they go. It will be this issue of sin. So, you know, we mustn't give up on seeing anyone saved. That person you thought about earlier, you mustn't give up on them being saved. You mustn't. They're in no better or worse position than the blind man. They're actually in no better or worse position than you were before you were saved, if you are saved. So we mustn't give up on them. What can we do? Well, number one, we can pray. Because that's what the Bible tells us to do, is to pray, is to petition, is to say, Jesus, you are the good shepherd, won't you go and find some sheep? You're the good shepherd, won't you go and find some sheep? And what about this person? And what about this person? We can pray. We must pray. The Bible commands us to pray. There were 10 of us at the Thursday night prayer meeting for salvation. It can break your heart. <laughs> There's more empty chairs than filled chairs. Something is not right. Holy Spirit, please come and stir again within us a heart to see people saved. I'm praying it for me. I'm praying it for you. I'm praying it for the church in this nation. I think second thing we can do is to be available, to be spiritually up for it, to be up for being used by God every day, wherever, whenever, whatever the situation or circumstance, God, won't you use us? Won't you use us? If necessary, we'll spit in on the ground and we'll rub it in someone's eyes, God. Whatever it may be, we're up for it. We're willing. Use us. You're the shepherd, you're the gay, and you use your people to lead them to salvation. We're your people. God, won't you use us? At work, at home, at school, at university, with our friends. God, if you will open the door, please use us in some way. I've been reading recently about a revival uh, that came 1858, so just before the First World War, hit America, hit England, Ireland, Wales, Scotland. God supernaturally moved, and it's like he pressed the fast forward button. And in a few short years, he saved over 2 million people in that country. 2 million. It's like us being here this Sunday, and us coming next Sunday, and there being 500 people. That's what it was like. And you know what? The church did nothing special. And, and there was nothing special or different that went on except God supernaturally, sovereignly decided that he was going to go in and, like a shepherd, gather thousands, millions of people like this blind man and like the people that you had in your eyes and like me and you before we were saved. 
kind of feel like God wants to put that sense in us again for salvation. Not just the ones and twos, but actually that God would save the hundreds, the thousands, that God would turn around this nation and the nation. It's not something we can work up ourselves. I feel it's something that we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to do and to catch us up in. So I hope, I don't know where to end, but I'm going to end now, otherwise I'll just wrap it up. We may have a little bit of time. I did feel earlier that there were some people here who needed to have a meeting with their good shepherd. That there were some things going on in your life, maybe marriage, maybe work, your walk with him, where you needed the good shepherd to come and speak to you. And that's okay, because he's your good shepherd. He's, he's got you, and now he cares for you. And he's here this morning. So if that's you, I would encourage you to seek after your good shepherd, because I think he wants to bless you. But I also want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to stir you in terms of the whole thing of salvation, seeing people saved, seeing spiritually where people are at, and being willing to be used by God in our day, right here, right now, not over there, not in Africa, not in 30 years' time, not when you retire and become a missionary, right now, this week, here in lives. Are you with me? I feel there's just something of an urgency of that. I think Quince's testimony was a bit of an example of that. Because a teacher came to work this week in this school, probably not saved, had a meeting with Quincy, God met with them, they went away saved. Right here. Right here. See, it's right, but, but it doesn't, I suppose it's tricky for us because it doesn't happen so often. And we're, oh, did it really? I, I, I honestly think God wants this more and more and more. I'm going to shut up and hand back to Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you.